Hello, this is Bill Lipsy. I'm the president of Pazina Investment Management, and I'm here with Rich Pazina, our chief executive officer and co-chief investment officer. Uh, this is the second of our chats during the period of the coronavirus. Um, Rich, we sat together exactly one month ago today. Now, when I say we sat together, we literally sat together in the office, and we didn't know it was our last day in the office, but it was our last day in the office. Um, we thought at that moment that we knew that the world had already been turned upside down, and what's transpired since then is even more extraordinary. During the last conversation, you and I spent a bit of time talking about how we manage the business in a time of crisis. And um, I thought, uh, reflecting on something you said in that conversation was a good way to kick you off today. You, you said last time that what we did right last time was stay calm. We stayed focused on our roots. We stayed focused on how to find opportunity in the wreckage. So I think I'm going to start with that quote from you, Rich. Um, clients are asking, is this, is this the Great Depression? It's a rather extraordinary question, but I think it's the question on everybody's mind. It is. I mean, you, you, the one thing that you can tell by looking at the stock market is that nobody really knows what to think. And so the minds wander to the worst possible extremes. You know, when you sit here and you have a screen up and on one day, every stock is down five, seven, nine percent And the next day they're up by the exact same amounts. You say, wow, no one really knows anything. And so they're behaving that way. And so fear, it's fear, the extremes of fear and greed. And that, that has actually shown up in statistical data of volatility. It's, it's quite amazing. If you look at the volatility in the marketplace, the daily ups and downs of stock prices, I, I would have thought that I would never be saying a statement like this we've matched the level that occurred during the Great Depression, during the stock market crash of 1929, which none of us were alive for, but we all studied. And now our markets are behaving that way. And so, of course, people are fearful. There are people who think, as we thought initially, oh, this is a short-term thing. People get sick, they get over it, and, we'll go, and life will go on. And now we're bombarded day after day after day with discussions in the media, uh, with our friends, with so-called medical experts, who every one of them has a different opinion. You know, you don't even know whether it's more important to wear a mask or wash your hands. You ask 20 different experts and you get 20 different opinions. So it's not surprising the market is behaving the way it's behaving. And when I say depression, what I'm talking about is a fairly extended period of economic malaise where you just don't recover from this. Um, 
are we headed into one of those? And that's what's on people's minds. And obviously for us, you know, you think, oh my God, what happens if we actually, if that does actually happen? How should we think about investing if that's the case? Um, and of course, we don't think that's the case, right? We're thinking that that's the worst case. So again, what would you do? And so, you know, we do what we always do. We looked at data and history to see how the market has behaved in periods of extreme volatility um, and including the Great Depression. And obviously there are lots of periods in our lifetimes where um, we're using the last 40 years of data, effectively our investment histories. There's good data to see what happens during periods of market volatility. And market volatility is the statistical reaction, data point, whatever the word is, to uncertainty. That's really what volatility is measuring. So when things are highly volatile, it, they're very uncertain. So what behaviors occur when people are uncertain? They seem to be the same in almost every period of time. We flock to the things that we feel are the safest. So that's government bonds, right? Interest rates have gone to effectively zero. We're giving the money, the government our money and not charging them to use it because we're worried that if we put it in something else, it's gonna lose value. We're even worried if we put it in the bank, it's gonna lose value. So we give it to the government. Um, to the extent we wanna stay in stocks, well, we can go to the things that are the beneficiaries of this kind of environment, like Zoom, like Amazon, like the, the players who are delivering food and groceries to our houses, um, or to the tried and true that are part of a, the, this transition to a new kind of economy that fits with the image of what happens if you have to work from home and socially distance. And we sell dramatically anything that is negatively impacted, which is pretty much everything else, right? Anything related to big ticket consumer spending. Nobody's out buying cars. Obviously, airplane, tra travel, probably the biggest decline of any industry restaurants, hotels. These, these are the things that are obvious, but then the secondary impacts. Oh, well, I'm not driving my car anymore. So energy and oil, autos, um, the people who make airplanes and their parts. I mean, it goes on and on. And then you go into the banks. Um, and so there's, this is what happens. So, so let me pick up on that very point that everybody's panicked, everybody's uncertain, as you just said. And so one of the things we do is we stop, certainly stop buying new cars. And we don't even drive the cars that we already have. So energy prices have collapsed. And yet energy is clearly one of the places we believe there are great opportunities if you have a long holding period. So talk a little bit about that. And as somebody who spent part of his life in the energy industry, 
how it really works. Sure. Well, obviously, there's oil demand and oil supply. So the demand has dropped, perhaps by 25 or 30 percent from where it was before we shut down the economy. Supply keeps coming out of the ground, right? Once you've drilled an oil well, there's nothing to do other than collect it and sell it. All of the spending happens in getting it ready to get to that point. So we all see what we're reading in the newspaper. The supply keeps coming out and the demand goes down. So we got to put that supply somewhere. We're filling up storage. Um, we're running out of storage. And when we run out, then what's going to happen? The supply has to drop. So everybody gets the negative, right? This is why share prices have collapsed. What's interesting, though, is that the companies that are in the energy business, if they don't drill new oil wells, they can't run out of money because that's what you spend the money doing. When the oil is flowing, even though everybody calculates what the price cost per barrel of producing a barrel of oil is, the reality is that cost is a decision that you make to do something to the well to keep it producing. So the real cost, if you don't do anything, is pretty close to zero. And so the oil keeps coming. So that means the cash flows of people in this industry don't really get impacted because they can stop spending money. What they impact is the future, right? Because if you don't spend money on drilling wells, then the oil supply declines. I mean, this is the, the, the clearest piece of information that there is. You know, the, the spending on keeping an oil well running is to keep it running. If you don't spend, it doesn't keep running. I, it's not that complicated. So supply will decline in this environment. So then when the, when the demand comes back, which will inevitably happen, the only thing we're debating is it going to happen next year or is it going to happen four years from now? And because supply will, because at these extremes, supply will just adjust very rapidly, um, you can see how the normal conditions will prevail. Because one thing we do know is that it costs at $50 a barrel or more to get a full cycle return on the money that you spend to drill wells, to drill for oil. So we're going to have to do that again if the demand recovers. So we can calculate the normal earnings based on $50 oil. And when the oil stocks have fallen by 70% from their highs, and the price is going to go back to where it went back to, the only question is, will these companies make it for long enough to get to that point? And the answer for an oil producer is almost certainly yes, unless they borrowed money and the banks foreclosed. But if they didn't borrow money, it's almost certainly yes. And you can buy companies as long as you're convinced that they're going to make it through this period of time. And unless we're in a world that's vastly, vastly different, you're going to make money. So let me, let me pick up on that with regard to one of our big holdings, Halliburton. So maybe you could use Halliburton, Rich, as, an, as a way to illustrate how we think about the stress case. And the second part of the uh, conversation I'd like you to engage in is how, how are the managements responding 
to our continual calling in this environment um, as, as the world is shifting? Well, look, Halliburton is the recipient of the money that oil companies spend drilling wells. So as they shut down their volumes of spending, um, Halliburton's revenues decline. Uh, they happen to be the leader in North American fracking. And you can argue that fracking is to some extent what destabilized the world oil markets. It's been great for the United States and energy self-sufficiency, but the reality is we added a lot of new oil production into the world market, and that caused the Saudis and the other big players to have to make room for us, and they reached the tipping point of where they were willing to make room. So um, the good part about Halliburton is that they're also the number two player globally, broadly speaking, in oil field services. So they're not just tied to fracking. So as the spending comes down, what's nice is most of the costs are variable costs. So if you don't get hired to frack a well, you don't hire people to go out and frack the well. And the equipment that you need to frack the well, you already paid for. So as long as you're not sitting there with debt, then you should be okay. And Halliburton has some debt. But so the, the key to the analysis is to say, is there enough positive cash flow to get them through this period of downturn before drilling inevitably has to go up? It is not possible to meet world oil demand without higher levels of drilling. So it's a very, very simple analysis. How much does their cash flow get killed by? And we think it stays positive through almost any oil price scenario. And what are the banks going to do? And in the case of Halliburton, they have several years, I think at least three years, without any debt being due, and they don't have any covenants on their debt. So they have an extended period of time with which to deal with this crisis. And the stock is down 90% from its high. So remember, while we are sitting here talking about stocks, the stock market going down 15 or 20%, year to date, the S&P is only down like 15, 20%. And you're thinking, well, considering the crisis we're in, maybe that's terrible, but the stocks we're buying are not down 15 or 20%. The stocks we're buying are down 50% and more, and yet they have the resources. Now you asked about companies. One of the nice things about this environment from a research person's perspective is that the senior management teams of companies that we invest in who used to spend all of their time on the road visiting their various operations and their customers and their suppliers are home and they're happy to talk to you. And so I think the volume of calling and activity and, and conversations with CEOs and CFOs has been unprecedented in our history. The access has been unprecedented and the openness and transparency of what they're doing is the, the most significant because it's they view it as it's not my fault, right? So they don't have to hide or spin a story about why things aren't turning out the way we thought. They just have to say, this is the reality. This is how we're dealing with it. 
These are the fixed costs that we can't get out of. These are the costs we can cut. This is how much cash we have. This is how much liquidity we have. And we can, together with the management team, explore these issues. You know, you're making me think about um, a comment that we got recently from uh, one of the big consulting firms talked about how this is an environment where managers with very clear investment processes stand out. And so I'm curious to hear you talk about how our investment process is working in an environment where the analysts are all sitting in their homes, the managements are all sitting in their homes, we're, we're not running around the world kicking tires either. So how does it work? Well, remember, kicking tires mostly isn't really kicking tires. Kicking tires is having conversations with people who know something about the businesses or running the businesses. And so this is very easy to do from home. And in fact, the, the actual productivity has just ballooned, right? If you see how much comes through our normal research review process on a weekly basis, we've had to expand the hours of research review by 50% each week just to be able to handle all of the stuff that people are producing. And initially it was the companies we already own um, and making sure that they have the resources to make it through the downturn. But it's also now looking at new things and deciding whether you can in, in, enhance your portfolio. Remember in a portfolio of anywhere from 25 to 75 stocks that we have across the board in our, in our firm, um, there are some that have held up in this downturn. And there are some that are very sharply down. So you can actually make adjustments to your portfolio first within your own stocks, and then look at the newly um, discounted or, or cheap stocks and see if there's a sense of selling out of the stuff that's down just a little bit to replace it with something that's down a lot. And I want to go back to this depression analysis if I can, because I don't want to lose that point. This happened in the depression too. So if you had bought stocks in 1929, right after the first stock market crash, I'll say that's sort of akin to the crash we had in March. Right, the S&P plummeted by, from its high by high 20s. I think it was low 30s in the Great Depression, the initial stock market crash. So if you bought at that point, how did you do? And actually, if you, if you had a one-year time period, you didn't do too well. You didn't do well whether you bought cheap stocks or expensive stocks. But if you had a longer holding period, let's say five years, it was massively different, right? If you bought in December of 1929, after the stock market crashed, and you waited five years, if you bought the S&P composite index, you would have lost 10% a year over the next five years. And if you bought the cheapest quintile of stocks, you would have made 10% a year. Why is that? Well, because the S&P only fell a little and everything else fell a lot. And if you bought the stocks that fell a lot, 
you actually, they already were reflecting the negative case and all the things that everybody flocked to turned out to be equally affected by the depression. So, you know, thinking that Google won't be de affected by the uh, depression because it's Google belies the whole idea that they make money on advertising and that's it. That's the only way they make money. So if we're in a four year period of extended economic malaise, which is what we all fear, I promise you people are not spending money on advertising um, when they're laying off people and firing people and shutting their factories. You know, I marvel at for the first two weeks of the coronavirus, watching pictures of Jamaica on TV, thinking who is advertising going to Jamaica and those are gone, right? And um, now we're seeing advertising for whatever you can get delivered to your home. And by the way, I'm sure at sharply lower advertising rates than existed two months ago. So let's talk about another sector that's been punished in this environment that we're highly exposed to and kind of connected to the financials. Talk a little bit about how you're evaluating financial stocks today. Well, um, financials is a very broad category. So I'll, I'll break it down into banks and insurance companies. Let me start with insurance companies first because we actually did increase our exposure to AIG um, late, late last month. Um, AIG stock price had fallen from 60 and bottomed at $16 a share. Let's just put some perspective on this. And if you measure it from its three-year high, which was like mid to high 60s, this is a roughly 80, nearly 80% price decline. And basically people saw a bunch of things they were afraid of. Well, they own bonds because they collect the premiums and invested in bonds. So there's credit risk. They need to earn interest to be able to pay out their life insurance proceeds because that's how it works. And if interest rates go to zero, there's interest rate risk. They're insuring people who are dying of this disease. There's mortality risk. And then there's casualty risk because there's business interruption insurance. So you have all these things going on and AIG stock gets killed. And remember, we thought AIG was earning like $6 a share. So if you buy it at 16 and it gets back to the $6 a share, well, I don't know, that's 30 plus percent return per year. If I, if I buy it for 16 and I collect $6 a year, even if for the next two or three years I don't collect anything, I'm still going to be very, very happy with my investment. So the question is, do they make it through? And the reality is the credit risk is the biggest concern because the interest rate risk, they match the duration of their assets and liabilities. They're not perfect at it, but when they write an insurance policy, they take the money and buy long-term bonds. So they're locked in for a long term. So they bought them five, 10 years ago at much higher yields and they get to collect that. And when they write new policies, they have to adjust the premiums to account for the fact that they, that they don't earn as much interest. Mortality risk, well, they, they try to balance that too. And that's not actually that hard to do because you write annuities and life policies. So annuities, if people 
die early, you stop paying their annuity premiums if they're life annuities. And you balance that against paying out for death claims. And they're pretty balanced. Um, the casualty risk of, you know, paying out for business interruption, which is somewhat controversial because they don't cover it. And the state legislatures are going, and they don't cover it, they offer it, but nobody wants to pay for it because, and I'm talking about business interruption as it applies to pandemics, right? They cover business interruption if your store burns down and it takes you three months to rebuild, okay, that's business interruption insurance. But these are specifically excluded and the risks that governments force them to cover it is a, is a fear, but they'll, the way that this is gonna happen when, with where we have actual precedent for this, which was terrorism insurance post 9-11, was um, the governments get involved to make sure that people, that the insurers don't go broke doing this and actually have reasonable outcomes. Plus it's a very small portion of their business to begin with. So then it just comes down to credit risk. And what is the, their investment portfolio? It's, it's corporate bonds that are generally investment grade rating that have gone from selling for 100 cents on the dollar to selling for 90 cents on the dollar. And we're buying them for 20 cents on the dollar. That's it. That's the whole investment. And they have the resources to continue to pay their expenses and their interest costs even if there's downgrades in the bond ratings, and even if the rating agencies start to panic um, and tell them to stop writing insurance policies or stop paying dividends or whatever they might do, they have the resources to get through a multi-year period. So hence that. And banks, you know, banks are somewhat different because banks have lent money and you know, the, there's hundreds of billions of dollars of capital that has been raised into the US banking system post the financial crisis, literally hundreds and hundreds of billions that has taken the capital ratios to levels that even if you had the kind of credit losses that would exist during a, a major economic downturn, these companies would be able to um, survive as long as the liquidity remained intact which means that there's no panic. And that's the partnership that the government has with banks. And the Fed is playing its part in spades, going out there and making every market function by swamping the markets with liquidity. If that behavior continues, you're buying banks now at 50% off or more from their recent highs, and they were cheap on their recent highs. So, so let me let me pick out one more. Um, I'm going to pick an individual name because we it's become the largest position in our portfolio over the last year or so, and that's General Electric. And and what I'd like you to comment on particularly, Rich, is there's a well-known analyst on the street on the sell side who's labeled it the greatest value trap in the market today. So I'd like you to respond to his um, orientation. Well, it's hard to think of a company as a value trap when the underlying businesses are so spectacular. So the only way that you could really think of this as a value trap is if they couldn't make it through to get to the point. You know, they're one, 
their aircraft engine business, which is the biggest concern out there because nobody's flying, and you make all your money, all, by maintaining the engine, selling the spare parts to keep them running. When you sell a new engine, you don't really make very much money. And interestingly, GE's engines are on half of every plane, commercial airplane that flies, and more than half of the new ones that were being delivered prior to the coronavirus crisis. So you sort of look at this and say, the companies buy the engine and they're stuck buying your parts, which you make high margins on. And as long as they use the airplanes, you're gonna make a lot of money. I can't imagine how anybody could not think that's a good business, I'm sorry. But if nobody's flying their airplanes, well, it's not gonna be good in the near term. So we sort of looked at this and said, what if nobody flew their airplanes at all for the next year? Now, they are flying, right? All the cargo airplanes are flying, um, the passenger aircraft aren't flying, but zero seems extreme, but let's just use zero. Zero revenues for GE Aviation. Well, again, this is a highly, a high margin business um, with very variable costs. We estimate that GE has about $6 billion of fixed costs per year if they do nothing to cut those costs. So if they had zero revenue, they would lose $6 billion a year. Well, GE has $54 billion of liquidity. And by liquidity, I mean cash in the bank um, and credit facilities available to it. And remember, they just sold a division, which they just closed on very recently, where they got $20 billion in cash. So they're sitting there with nine years of zero. Um, now, I know there are other things that can go wrong in other businesses, too. I'm just trying to, to tell you, if you put everything going wrong in every business, you'd be hard pressed to run through that liquidity. And they wouldn't just keep spending the money. They would do other things. So here, you get a chance to buy one of these great franchises at five times or six times its long-term earnings power. And GE, by the way, its three-year high was mid-20s, something like that. And the stock bottomed in the fives, high fives, it's in the sixes now, roughly. So, you know, at one-fourth or one-fifth of what it sold for. So if it is one-fourth or one-fifth of the company it used to be, you break even. And if it's equal to the company it used to be, you make a lot of money. That's what you're talking about here. And, the, and this is why it's so interesting, right? The, this value collapse, which is extreme, not only in the last six weeks, but in the last two years and in the last extended period since the financial crisis, to the point where we're buying things where the risk reward trade-offs are fairly compelling. And all the data that you look at that says what happens when volatility starts to go back down, this is when value shines because the uncertainty narrows. And when the uncertainty narrows, you don't sit there saying, oh my God, I think GE is going to go out of business. You say, it didn't go out of business and look, things are going to be better in the future. And that's, that's why value works. I mean, I don't think it's any more difficult than that. Okay. I, I want to I close our conversation today with a reflection, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well. 
one of the things that I know we've been extraordinarily blessed by and feel um, supported by is the fact that our clients continue to reallocate assets to us. We've had four straight years of net positive flows in a world where value's not been popular. And now after the first quarter of 2020, in a coronavirus world, we just reported net positive flows again. And I know that, that we all that we feel grateful. And I'm curious to hear how you feel about um, the business net growing in a world like this. It's hard to even believe that this is our fortune. So how, what do I attribute it to? Well, I attribute it to the fact that we've just been doing this for 25 years. And so people know what we do. They know we're not trying to guess what's going to happen next quarter or next year and try to position the portfolios based on that. They know they're getting a value portfolio. So if they decide that they want to reallocate some of their money out of the stuff that has worked and become oversized in their portfolio and into something that hasn't worked and they choose where to do it, they know what they're getting. So if we, if we do what we say we're going to do, then that's, we take that piece of uncertainty out of the equation. It doesn't mean we're going to get it right. I mean, we believe we're going to get it right, but people are buying us because of, I'll call it the certainty of knowing how we're going to behave. Thanks, Rich. Thanks for the opportunity to have the conversation.